Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do Egypt, kind of part two, the Middle and New Kingdoms. So when we left off in our last episode, we talked about the um, end of the Old Kingdom, which faded away after building pyramids and the loss of legitimacy and... The first intermediate period where no nobility fought each other to become the new pharaoh. And the prince of Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S, wins and forms the Middle Kingdom. Again, no army. They had mercenaries. The prince of Thebes actually, Thebes is well in the south. It's the actually the trading uh, point with Africa. And so what the Prince of Thebes did was hire African mercenaries who helped him. But once he won, he sent those mercenaries home. There's, there's really no reason to keep them, right? They're expensive. They're just hanging around. You're not fighting anybody. So he sends them back to Africa. Thank you very much. Pays them off. There you go. So again, Middle Kingdom, no army. What about pyramids? Are they going to build pyramids? No. Why? Because it didn't work. I mean, it worked for the Old Kingdom for 500 years, and then it didn't work. And so you're not going to do a thing. It's like getting back with your ex. It's never a good idea, right? Because all the things that were the problem are still there. And so the pyramids worked for a long time, and then they stopped working. And so the Middle Kingdom is going to have to find a new method of legitimacy. The Nile still floods. Egyptians still make a lot of money. Egypt itself is very rich. The pharaoh still has the greatest job in the whole wide world. So what form of legitimacy is the Middle Kingdom going to have? The first is infrastructure. Why? Because everybody loves infrastructure. It is a way of helping build economic prosperity. It makes the economy work better. So you build roads and you build canals. What do, what do farmers need? They need water. And so you need to build canals from the river out to the farms. And so, Sun, Sun I always pronounce this wrong. Sunusret, the third is going to dredge the Upper Nile. That allows for ships to go um, further and come from Africa longer distances. And so, you get more efficient trade. I'm in Het. Amen, M Het. Amenemhet, A M E N E M H E T, also the third. He set up mines in the Sinai. Why is that a good piece of infrastructure? Well, if mines make minerals, that makes money, so you could have lower taxes because the government won't need as much taxes in coinage because it's making money from mineral wealth. So you get um, infrastructure. People like infrastructure, right? You, living in South Jersey or Philadelphia, might take the Ben Franklin Bridge or the Walt Whitman Bridge. So you like those bridges. The Paco. 295. Highway 130. 156. The Atlantic City Expressway, 42, 
You cannot get to Canham County College without driving. And all of those roads are infrastructure. All the lights are infrastructure. All of the dredging for um, water seepage, for rain runoff, that's all infrastructure. And people like that. Do you have any idea which political party built the Walt Whitman Bridge? And do you care? And the answer is no. And I'm going to bet no. I'm going to bet your vote right now, this year in 2020, 2021, has nothing to do with a bridge that was built 50 years ago. Right? And so that's the problem with infrastructure. Once the infrastructure is built, people forget that it wasn't always there. There was a time when the Walt Whitman Bridge wasn't there. There was a time when the PACO wasn't there. And then it was. And when it was being built, it kind of sucked because it was all the construction. But then once it was there, you used it and went, oh, I like this a lot. And maybe for the first kind of election or two, you went, oh, so you're the guy who got the money to build us the PACO or build us the bridge. That's great. You're a Democrat. Awesome. You're a Republican. That's fine. Terrific. I like it. I'm going to give you my vote. Okay. But two or three or four election cycles later, no one cares because it became ordinary. It's not new. And so infrastructure is good. It makes people money. It makes Egypt more efficient. It makes the pharaoh money. Problem. People don't really care. They like that it's there, but once it's there, they kind of forget that it wasn't always there. And so it's a it's the, the law of diminishing returns. As time goes on, they're just not as impressed by a canal. It becomes ordinary. So Middle Kingdom pharaohs are going to need a second way of impressing the people, of gaining legitimacy. And that is going to be cultural creation. Story of Sinuhe. They're going to invest in stories, in writing, in tales. They're going to regularize writing and language. They're going to use papyrus to make writing widespread and easily disseminated. They're going to hire poets to write plays, and those plays are going to be tales of greatness about the pharaoh. The advantage of using cultural creation is it's cheap. Actors, teamsters, playwrights, it's cheap. As Shakespeare tells us, actors are a dime a dozen. And it touches a lot of people who listen to the play, who go and watch the play for free and leave going, oh, Pharaoh was pretty cool. So what happens is it's like a circus. It comes to town, right? You're, it's 1850 BCE, right? You're in a rural Egyptian town. What cool thing happens in a rural Egyptian town that the teenagers can go and do at night? Answer, nothing. And then... The circus comes to town. The actors come to town with their horns and they're marching and they come in and they build a stage in the middle of the town square. 
and they set up seats and they say, come and see what we're going to put on. And the teenage girls go, well, I want to do this. This is going to be fun, which means the teenage boys want to go. And if teenage girls and teenage boys are going to go, that means parents are going to go because parents know that teenagers need time alone, just not that much time alone and not that much alone. And so the teenagers will sit up in the front. The adults will sit up in the back. The little, little kids will sit like on the floor in front of the teenagers. So it's not too much canoodling, right? And out will come the MC, and he will say, thank you for coming. Tonight's entertainment was brought to you by a generous donation from Pharaoh. This stage was built by Pharaoh. All of the costumes were paid for by Pharaoh. And all of our plays are about Pharaoh. Enjoy. And then you watch two, three hours of plays and acts and different things all about how awesome Pharaoh is. And when you leave, what do the little kids want to do? They want to be Pharaoh. They're like, they're playing with each other going, oh, no, I'm going to be Pharaoh. No, I'm going to be Pharaoh. No, 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 I'm going to be Pharaoh. And everyone's like, that was a good time. And it didn't cost us anything. It was free. Pharaoh is generous. Pharaoh is cool. I like Pharaoh. And that's the advantage. It's right there. It's all in the hearts and minds. It touches a lot of people, and they have a good view of Pharaoh. They're not working for him directly like they do with the pyramids, but they're still getting the information. Nice. What's the disadvantage? The disadvantage is you can't control who hears the story or how they hear it. This is the Facebook problem. This is your TikTok problem. This is your Snap problem. The thing, have you ever gotten into a fight with a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or somebody where you texted them or you saw a post on their Facebook and you're like, ooh, that's weird. Or you texted them and they're like, oh, how did you, why did you mean that? It's like, you meant it one way, but they heard it a different way. Or how about you sent your significant other a picture. This is how Snap works, right? This is why Snap was invented. You sent them a picture, and they showed, as teenage boys are wont to do, their friends. Once you have a story, you cannot control who hears it or how they hear it. How about this one? My bank is so safe. It is in such a safe neighborhood, it doesn't even need guards. It has $500 million in it, and it doesn't have a single guard. Well, if you, you're bragging about the safety of the neighborhood, how nice it is. You might want to buy a house there. Oh, wouldn't you like to invest? You might want to go to the bank. You might want to open up because it's safe. The town is safe. The people are nice. But what if you're telling this in a bar and listening not listening hard, but, you know, listening enough. Next to you is a Mesopotamian pirate. What do they hear? Do they hear about the safety of the neighborhood or the lack of a guard at a bank? Exactly. Give you another example. Pharaoh is so wonderful. He spent a billion dollars helping orphans. Now, what does an Egyptian hear? They hear, 
helping orphans. They do not hear the billion dollars. Why? Because Pharaoh is rich. Of course he spent a lot of money. You'd only care if he didn't spend a lot of money. If the story was, did you hear that Pharaoh gave 25 cents to help orphans? You'd be mad. But a billion dollars, you go, yeah, that sounds about right. Pharaoh has a lot of money. But again, if you were a Mesopotamian pirate lord, which part did you hear? Did you hear the helping orphans? No, you heard the gave a billion dollars away. Well, if he gave a billion dollars away, he must have more money because no one gives away all of their money. And so, hey, Pharaoh is rich. Oh, and by the way, did you hear the part about how Pharaoh is so loved by his people he doesn't even have an army? Again, Egyptians, the love of the people. Mesopotamian pirate lord, no army and lots of money. And so that's exactly what happens. That's the Hiskos. The Hiskos are Mesopotamian warrior pirates with chariots. They come from a tough neighborhood. They might be Phoenicians. There is some argument that they're actually Canaanites. They're early Hebrews or related to Hebrews. They're Hebrew cousins because we don't really have the Hebrews yet. But they're related to these people in the Levant, somewhere between Syria and the Sinai. And lower Cana, southern Cana, these people come rolling out. They heard these stories. They cross the Sinai. They invade lower Egypt, the Delta region. They invade lower Egypt. And Egypt has no horses. They have no armies. They have no tradition of war. And so what happens? They get crushed. The pharaoh is killed in battle. It ends the Middle Kingdom. The Hiskos loot Lower Egypt, and they begin this second intermediate period, and this is a giant trauma. How could this happen? How do we prevent this from happening? This terrible thing has happened. Egypt doesn't war. Egypt doesn't destroy things. And now they're being attacked by these tough, technologically advanced barbarians from across the desert. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Nobody has any experience with anything like this. It's crazy and it's horrible. So what does Egypt need? It needs a hero. It needs someone to unify the nobility, someone to build an army to defeat the Hiskos, and someone to motivate the people to stop future invasions. That is somebody who is going to have to change Egypt completely. Now, that's a disadvantage. People don't like to change. You're changing everything about them. You're going to build an army? Egypt's never had an army. You're going to motivate people to stop future invasions? Egypt had never been invaded. And now you have to unify the nobility? Well, okay. The nobility is usually unified. But remember, it took 100 years during the first intermediate period to do it. We don't have that kind of time for a second intermediate period. Because what are the Hiskos doing? They're looting. They're raping. They're burning. They're destroying. They're not being very nice to Egyptians. And every noble guy wants to be pharaoh. And every noble person thinks, oh, I'm the one who can unify Egypt and kick out the Hiskos. I'm the hero. Everyone wants to be Superman. Everyone wants to be Luke Skywalker. So Egypt needs to do this. And they get that person. Amos. Amos. Now, Amos is going to reference 
And they're going to get this person, Amos, who himself is referencing Middle Kingdom pharaohs with his art. He is saying, I am a continuation, that the Middle Kingdom didn't end, even though it did. But he's like hearkening back. He's going to make Egypt great again by kicking out the Hiskos. But to do so, he can't continue the Middle Kingdom. He has to start the new kingdom. And the new kingdom is going to be 400, 500 years, and it's going to be the imperial age. It's successful. It is a successful period. It is actually the most famous period. It is when you think of Egypt, this is the period. Your Bible has this period. When you go to the museum, it's this period. King Tut, this period. The Egyptian art, this period. Hieroglyphics, uh, old kingdom. It is the imperial age. And legitimacy is not art. It's not culture. It's not infrastructure. And it's not building big-ass things. It is war. It is war and protection. Now, you, that's important because that's not Egyptian, quote-unquote. Egyptians don't do war until the new kingdom. They don't go and conquer other people. This is totally new. It's a totally new form of legitimacy. The new kingdom is violent, and that's new. And they're going to build an army. Amos builds an army. What kind of army is going to build? Well, like we talked about, there's no time. So he builds a Mesopotamian army. He looks at the Hiskos army and copies it, but makes it better because Egypt has more money. So the Mesopotamians have chariots, horses, bows, and bronze. Guess what Egypt, the Egyptian army is going to have? Chariots, horses, bows, and bronze. This is not an Egyptian army, quote-unquote. It doesn't come out of Egyptian culture. It doesn't come out of the Egyptian experience. The Egyptians are going to fight like Mesopotamians in order to defeat Mesopotamians. But the army does not represent the culture. And up to this point, that's what we've been talking about, right? The Assyrians have combined arms, have this trauma, have this militarized society to represent who they are. They are tough, angry terrorists, right? The Babylonians are rich and advanced and technological, so they have chariots, right? Persia is imperial. They're going to bring in lots of different people. Everyone fights their own way. But how do the Persians fight? As cavalry on horseback. Why? Because they were nomads before they became conquerors. The Greeks will have a phalanx. The Romans will have a legion. Every army represents the aspects of the culture, of the people, their technology, their culture, their experience, their geography, right? American, the American army has, from the beginning, really 1812, but definitely the Civil War, uh, the War with Mexico, because the revolution, not so much. But starting at least with the War of Mexico, it's technology. It's more guns. It's more men. It uses, it, uh, America has a lot of land. It has a lot of people. It has a lot of money. So what does it do? It uses all of those. So for World War II, it puts 20 million men into arms and then makes a boat, makes a, a battleship every five minutes, makes a plane every minute, makes a tank every 30 seconds, right? Egypt doesn't do that. Egypt copies somebody else's army. 
and forces their culture to act like the Mesopotamians, to fight like Mesopotamians. Egypt has the money. And it needs a solution to its problem. And the quickest way is it buys a modern army. It simply buys one. It buys the Mesopotamian army. Now look at the art that we have. This is King Tut. And this is, this is how you know, one, one way you know, that the Egyptians see themselves different from Africans is that King Tut is a different color than the people he's attacking. The people he's fighting with are Kushites. They're sub-Saharan Africans. It's his invasion of Kush, right? But look at him. He is 10 feet tall. His horses are enormous. He's got a bow. Remember, you need a driver and an archer to shoot, to ride a chariot. Not King Tut, not a, not a, not a pharaoh. He could do it all by himself. He's driving it. He's driving those horses with his hips and his mind. He's Who is he fighting? The entire army. And who is he defeating? Everybody. The ravens represent the gods. He's got the gods on his side. He's got animals attacking the attacking the uh, African forces. He's destroying them all by himself. The only other Egyptians on his side are the guys fanning him so he doesn't get too sweaty while he destroys an entire army by himself. Do you see how different this representation is? It's all power. It's all size. It's all glory. This is not the pyramids. And this is not infrastructure or a tale, a story about how Pharaoh saved ducks from a flood. No, this is artwork that everybody looks at and goes, holy shnikes, Pharaoh is awesome. And King Tut was a loser Pharaoh. Imagine what Ramses II built at Luxor. Hundred foot tall statues of him being awesome. And so what we see is these strong warrior kings. That's what you need if you want to be Pharaoh. If in the new kingdom, you need to be a strong warrior king. Amos will kick out the Hiskos. He'll build that army. He'll build that Mesopotamian army. He'll build, he'll use his money to make chariots, buy horses, train his forces, and then kick out the Hiskos. Tutmos III. Now notice, I know these names. Tutmos. Tutmos III is going to invade Palestine. He's going to invade Africa. Cush. He's going to conquer the borderlands. He's going to absorb the frontier land of the first to the second cataract and make that Egypt. That's Egypt today. It's not even Egypt today. It was Egypt for Tutmos. He, he conquered it and he populated it. And he said, it's Egypt now, not a frontier. We don't stop at the first cataract. We, Africa starts at the second cataract. That provided security. He wants to dominate the borderlands. He wants to make it harder to get to Egypt, Right? The Hiskos came out of Cana, came out of Phoenicia, came out of Syria. So what does he do? He conquers those lands so they can't come out of there anymore. No one can. He forces Egypt to have to make allies, something they had never done before. And he stations troops outside of Egypt for the first time. Again, remember, Egypt was isolated. Now it's in the world. And then there's Ramses II. Ramses II is the king of this period. He is Osmondius. 
Ramsey's the second. It's going to fight a battle of Kaddish versus the Hittites. 800 miles away. It took him a year to get up there. The Battle of Kaddish is the oldest battle we know of that has contemporary sources, that we have people who wrote about it at the time. We actually have both sides. We have the Egyptian side and the Hittite side in our sources. So it's, it's the oldest battle we know of, and it's also one of the best recorded battles we know of. Look at the statue in the British Museum. If you're looking at the artwork, if you're looking at the video on the lower right, that is Ramses in statue as part of a much larger statue where Percy Shelley wrote Osmandius, his great poem about what is actually the stealing of this artwork from Egypt and bringing it to England. So you can see the, you can read the poem and look at the artwork at the same time. And if you're watching the video, you can do that. But Ramses is Osmandius. My name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. Because you can never do anything as awesome as I am. Now, Shelley is writing about how in the desert, that all of this is covered with desert. So you have this 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 thing this face of Ramses I am with a with a plaque that I am Asmanius king of kings look at my works ye mighty and despair and nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand stretch far away and so what Percy Shelley is saying is all great Empires die. All great things are forgotten by time. Everything is swallowed. So at one time, where this statue stood was a massive city of a great king, the greatest king of his age. And now it's been eaten by the sand. It's been forgotten by time. And what Shelley is writing about is the British Empire, that it's going to happen to us too. And it did. And then one day it will happen to the United States. The American century will end. What Ramses does is turn Egypt into a great power. He's going to fight Babylon. He's going to fight the Hittites. He's going to protect his allies. Why is he fighting a Kaddish 800 miles away? Because the Hittites were messing with one of his friends. They were messing with an ally. And that ally sent the message and said, Ramses, the Hittites are fighting with us. Can you help us? And Ramses said, F yeah, man, you're my friend. You're my homeboy. I'm going to get there. And he got his army together. And he got together and he said, we're going to Kaddish. It's going to take a year to get there. It's going to take a year to get back. We're going to kick ass. We're going to take names. We're going to beat up Hittites. Who's with me? And 30,000 people said, I am. And they went. That tells you how great Ramses was. Great kings can do that. Alexander could do that. Caesar could do that. He's not a king, but they followed him. Right? His armies followed him, fought for him. Ramses' armies followed him, fought for him. They're like, we're going to be gone two years? No problem. Kiss my kids goodbye. Kiss my wife goodbye. 
I'm with you, Ramses. Not very many men can do that. Inspire that kind of loyalty, that kind of action. Ramses also will build great monuments. He'll take Mesopotamian iconography. So again, Egypt is even becoming more Mesopotamian. But they Egyptotize it. But they're going to use the great statues. They're going to build these vast complexes. Like the ziggurats. They're not, they're not ziggurats, but they're going to be like ziggurats. And that's the idea, is this Mesopotamian culture sinks in to Egypt. Just like the army did. But the Egyptian culture is strong enough to Egyptotize it, to make it Egyptian. So that while Ramses' giant statues are a reference to Mesopotamian statues, they are clearly Egyptian, Egyptian iconography, Egyptian symbology, and the size and structure and, and um, meanings that only Egyptians would understand. So again, we're building big things. Egypt is strong. Egypt is, a, is, is, is powerful with an army and money. So what are the problems for the new kingdom? Well, this is massively expensive. I mean, pyramids were expensive, and this is well beyond that. Armies are the most expensive thing humans have ever invented, and this is an army that needs to be used. So it's expensive. It's expensive to build the monuments. It's expensive to go and fight the other peoples. It's, in, it's, a, it's uh, expensive to import the horses and the bronze. This is expensive. And because of that, number two, the second problem, it requires a Hall of Fame quarterback. It requires an active, powerful king, an A-plus hero. It requires a Ramses. So what's the problem? They don't come along all that often. How many LeBrons are there? How many Steph Currys are there? There's not that many. They come along once a generation. You know, we go Michael Jordan, Kobe, then LeBron, right? It's kind of how... Now, there's other great players, and then, and then Steph Currys, right? There's other great players... But these are first-round Hall of Fame players. You, and you need a first-round Hall of Fame quarterback. How many Tom Brady's come along? How many play in this league at the same time? Two? Three? Right? You know? But that's what it requires. Because, because when those guys sent that message to Ramsey's, Help us. We know we're far away, but the Hittites are beating up, beating up on our friends. We need help. They're coming for us next. They had to know Ramses would show up. And Ramses had to know that when he put the call out for 30,000 men to come with him, that they would show up. And they did. But Ramses could have just as easily said, I'm staying in my hot tub, man. I'm rich. I'm Pharaoh. I don't need to go a year. I don't need to get on the road and cross one desert, two deserts, and a maybe half of a third to get up to you. Who are you? Look, the Hittites are tough, but they're not going to invade me anytime soon. 
I got plenty of time. I'm going to sit with my hot tub. I got my hot tub honeys. Life is good. Because for Pharaoh, life is always good, right? He could have done that. Or he could be so lacking of charisma, so lacking in awesomeness, that he goes, well, I will help out. I will help out my friends. People, come with me. I go to Kaddish a year away. And all of these Egyptian farmers say, oh, yeah, no, I'm staying home. I got my wife. I got some kids. I, I got, dude, I have a lot of Fortnite to play. That could have happened too. You need an active, powerful king with charisma, capable of motivating people. Otherwise, those allies don't call for help. They make a deal with the Hittites. Otherwise, your Egyptian farmers don't join the army and other allies go away or someone eventually invades Egypt, right? The third problem is it puts Egypt out into the world for the first time. Now it has to make allies. It has to fight other countries. It didn't have to do any of this before. And it's now a target. Because remember, Egypt is rich. So now it's a target. If you're a king on the other side of Sinai Desert and you want to be great, you got to worry what the pharaoh is going to do. Will he come out of the desert with his army? The Hittites obviously said, we are so far away. It is a year away no Egyptian pharaoh's ever showing up. And then Ramses showed up and is like, oh my God, Ramses is here. Well, I guess we'll have to fight him. But how freaked out must the Hittites have been? I mean, they write about how, well, we, we fought Ramses. But obviously, Ramses is badass. Like the Hittites know this because he came all the way there. Right? So it makes Egypt a target of other states, which means there's war all the time. You're fighting in Africa. You're fighting in Cana. You're fighting in Syria. Or you're sending your troops to put down rebellions or help allies, right? You now have to have your army going all the time, which you didn't ever have. You didn't even have an army before. And the other thing is, Egyptians don't really like it. In this way, they're very much like Americans. They don't really like going overseas. They don't like going to war for a year. They will for Ramses, but what about for Ramses the the seventh, the nincompoop? Ramses the boring. Are they going to go for him? Probably not. They don't like it. They want to stay in Egypt. Egypt is awesome. It doesn't rain in Egypt. The floods mean you have three months off. You make $250,000 a year. Life is good in Egypt. Why would I want to go to Syria? Let the Mesopotamians fight each other. Just like Americans say about Iraq or Afghanistan or North Korea. Like, let them fight each other. They want to fight each other so much? That's great. I need to go to Starbucks, get a latte and a frappuccino and a nice big cookie. And then I want to be on YouTube for a while. I don't want to be fighting in Afghanistan. You know why? Because I took a History 102 class and there's lots of fighting in Afghanistan. And it's going to be lots of fighting in the future in Afghanistan. And I'm okay with other people fighting each other for their homes. Thank you very much. And the ancient Egyptians of the new kingdom said the same thing. 
So again, that reinforces you need number two, a powerful, active king who can motivate people because the Egyptians don't really want to do it. They have to be encouraged to. And what happens in a new kingdom? It ends in violence and fire because of the Bronze Age collapse. It ends like everybody else. It ends like Babylon does. It ends like Egypt does. It, it is Egypt. It ends like India does. It ends like China does. It ends in collapse because of nomadic peoples on the move. Now, this is aided by a bunch of weak kings. After Ramses III, Ramses II is awesome. His son is very good. But after that, eh, they get a little, they get lazy. There's some are good, some are bad, but they're not, they're just not Ramses. Right? Just like after Khufu, they're just not. His Khufu's son is very good, is a very good king. He's just not, the, you know, the grandson, the great grandson. They're just not Khufu. It's how boomers talk about the greatest generation, their parents. Oh, they defeated Nazis. And then they look at their children, millennials, and go, oh, you're just not like grandpa. They're like, okay. So you get a bunch of weak kings. And then because of the Bronze Age collapse, this unexpected foreign invasion from the sea. Now, the new kingdom expected invasions by land because that's where the first invasions had come from. They dominated the seaports of Cana and Phoenicia. They didn't expect to get, you know, Vikings, you know, barbarian Vikings. These are mostly fin uh, Philistines, uh, proto-Greeks coming from Greece across the sea, three, four, five hundred miles and landing in their, their northern ports. Like, whoa, who are you people? Well, they're barbarians from across the sea. Just like the Aztecs when the Spanish show up. They're like, who are you people? Well, we from came from 3,000 miles away. Well, forgive the Aztecs for not being prepared for that craziness. And so these barbarians, and we know they're barbarians because they use giant iron axes as their major, major weapon. Whenever you see axemen running around, you go, quote-unquote, barbarians, because an axe is also a tool that you use to cut people's heads off. And so it's like the first weapon of tough but unsophisticated peoples is the giant axe. And the new kingdom collapses. It's the end of the new kingdom in this foreign invasion by the sea. The Philistines, these proto-Greeks, uh, there's also the idea that Canaanite peoples also came in. This is where the Hebrews get the story of the Exodus from. They're going to be involved in this. Or there's a possibility they're involved in this. Because this is a giant mess. Nobody knows. Everyone's on the move. So the best you have is like these remembering stories. But you get the end of the New Kingdom, which is also the end of independent Egypt. What do I mean by that? Well, what recovers? Egypt will recover but it will be conquered by Cush the 20, to form the 25th dynasty, which is a black African dynasty. Now, it's accepted by the Egyptians. So you get this mixture of African culture and Egyptian culture. The Cushites conquer Egypt. The Assyrians will conquer the Cushites and conquer Egypt. And the, the Cushites, pharaohs, will go back to Africa. The Assyrians will be kicked out because they collapse, as we talked about. You get a brief 26th dynasty that then gets conquered by the Persians. The Persians get conquered by the Greeks. The Greeks go for about, what is it, 300 years. And you get Cleopatra, the, the seventh, who is Macedonian, who is descended from Ptolemy. 
she will lose to the Romans, and the Romans will eventually be conquered by the Arabs, and the Arabs will form modern Egypt. Egypt today is an Arabic nation worshipping an Arabic god. An independent Egypt, except for a brief 26th dynasty, ends with the end of the New Kingdom and the Bronze Age collapse. Thank you.